0: Let's begin talking about the eternal festival of Purim. That's the title of today's Shi'ur, of today's talk. Um, I've given you a source sheet here, and the first thing we're going to do is read the Midrash. It's really one of the most startling Midrashim, um, predicting messianic times that we have, because it says something so confounding not just confounding for us, but confounding over you know, hundreds of years of rabbinic commentary, that I think that it's worth sharing this Midrash. I've, I've, it's a medrash from Mishleh from Proverbs. Um, I, I put the Hebrew there, um, and I'm going to read some of the words in Hebrew, but I've also translated it. The, the Posuk says in chapter 9 of Mishle, um, verse 2, pasuk Bet, Tavcha Tivcha Moscha Yeina. You know, Proverbs is written in a very poetic style. That means she has prepared the feast and mixed the wine. In the old days, they used to mix wine. They used to actually mix wine with water because the wine was so strong. It wasn't drinkable. They used to mix it with water. But she's prepared the feast. She laid the table and she's mixed the wine in preparation for this incredible feast that's about to follow. Amar Rabbi Avahu says Rabbi Avahu. Who are we we talking about? Who is the she in this pasuk that's being referred to? This is Queen Esther, who, when the sorrow came to the people of Israel in the days of Mordechai, what did she do? She fixed a meal for Achashverosh and the evil Haman and made him very drunk. She made Haman so drunk so that he believed that she was doing him great honor. And he was not aware that, in fact, what she had done was lay a trap for him well how she laid a trap for him she'd mixed the wine so well he drank so much of it that he became drunk and by making him drunk she had redeemed her people for all time so this pasuk in mishle is referring to queen esther who through preparing this feast this incredible tactic you would think it's an insignificant thing she invited haman and achashverosh to this private dinner and as a result of that, she saved her nation. The pasuk continues. Af orcha she has also set her table. That's the end of the same pasuk. Pasuk Bet in Perek Tet of Mishle. She set a table for herself in this world and in the world to come. That's what the Midrash says. What was this good name that she acquired in this world and in the world to come? What did Esther achieve that is being referred to by this pasuk? The answer that Midrash gives, and this is the confounding piece, so far so good, right? It's, I mean, it's, not, it's innocuous, so far. But now the Midrash says something unbelievable, remarkable, that all the festivals will be abolished in the future. No more Pesach, ladies, happy to hear that. No more Pesach, no more Shavuos, no more Sukkos, no more Shemini Atzeres. I mean, that also means no more Simchas Torah. But don't worry, guys, we'll still have Purim, because the celebration of Purim will never be abolished. Shekol atidim betelim, says the Midrash, vimei purim e'nam betelim le'olam. The Purim days will never be abolished. As it says, and it's a quote from, from Megillat Esther, and these days of Purim will never cease from among the Jewish people. I'll read you the pasuk as it appears in the Megillah. Vimei Purim lo ya'avru mitoch haYehudim. Purim is an eternal festival. Pesach isn't. Shavuos isn't. Sukkos isn't. Purim is really continues the Medrash and says, Amar Rabbi Lazar, Rabbi Lazar says. Yom Kippur will also never be abolished. Sheneemar, and this is a Pasuk in the Torah, in Vayikra Tetzain Pasuk Lamadalad. Zot Lachem Luchukat Olam, Lchaper Abne Yisrael, Mikochatatam, Achat Bashana. Lechukat Olam, for an eternal, uh, everlasting statute. So therefore, Yom Kippur is also going to be eternal. You want to know what our Jewish calendar year is going to look like when Mashiach comes? We're going to have weekdays, Shabbos, and two festivals, Purim and Yom Kippur. That's it. That's what the Medrash is telling us. So you're going to say, okay, you don't have to take every Medrash seriously, right? I mean, not every Medrash has to be taken literally. We've heard that before. Look what the Rambam says. Just in case you thought, that it shouldn't be taken seriously. This is Rambam, Rambam Hilchas Megillah and it's chapter two, it's the last halocha in chapter two. Halocha Yud Ches. All the books of the canon of Tanakh will no longer be relevant. Once Mashiach comes. Well, we know why. Because all the stories and all the prophecies of the prophets are all about the Messianic era. So they're not going to be relevant. You know, they're all either warning Jews, behave yourself or everything's going to go awry. Or they are predictions of what that awry is going to mean. And those are not going to be relevant anymore once Mashiach has come. So what we're going to have, Chutz Mimigilat Esther. So the only book from the viim and Ketuvim, which will still be used is going to be megilat esther we're going to have chamisha chumshe torah a megilat esther the torah shel betelim leolam and it's going to be um, continued megilat esther will still have equal relevance Like the Torah has relevance and like the Torah Shebaal Peh has relevance. All the halachot um, that are contained within the oral Torah that we learn in the Talmud and that have subsequently been um, put together in the halachic literature. Let's call it the Shulchan Aruch that we're aware of, that we're familiar with. Those laws will continue and we still have the Torah. That means the scroll that we have in the Arana Kodesh that we read on Shabbat. and Megillat Esther. Otherwise, everything else is no longer going to, it doesn't mean that we're not going to have them, they'll be in the library, but they're not going to be considered important in a canonical way. They're not going to be considered religious documents. Yes. You know, that
1: comment manifests an interesting way on Jewish personality, if I can generalize. Because it sure. put uh, Yom put together with uh, celebration of Purim. And I think it's a unique characteristic of Jewish personality. Jews <clears throat> are the only people, when the hard time comes, say there is something wrong with us and we have to improve, rather than bringing the resentment.
0: Yes. Well, you're going to find out that the festival of Purim and the festival of Yom HaKi Purim have a lot in common. And that's really what the Shira is going to be about. So, I mean, at some point we're going to discuss the correlation between Purim and Yom HaKi Purim. By the way, what about Rosh Hashanah? So I would I would assume that Rosh Hashanah will also continue. It's part of that Yom Hakippurim festival. So Yom Hakippurim is really a culmination of the Aseret Yemei Teshuvah. So the festivals that are going to be abolished are really going to be Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot. I'm guessing hanukkah Okay. In other words, it won't have religious connotations anymore. Uh, even though it will still exist in the calendar, the only two times of year that are going to be relevant in religious, in a religious way, are going to be Yamim Noraim and Purim. All the other festivals that we celebrate during the course of the calendar year, and of course the fast days will have been abolished. That's what the Medrash says, and look what the Rambam says. I'm just going to continue the Rambam. P shekal zichron atzarot yivutal, and even though all the memory of our suffering will be erased and quotes a pasuk, Yemei ha-purim lo the days of Purim, that means we have Purim and Shushan Purim, will not be abolished and again quotes a pasuk. So the Rambam enshrines this idea that's contained in the Medrash, in his halachic literature, none of the laws pertaining to um, the Purim will ever be abolished. Although there seems to be something underlying here as well. Even though the festivals will be abolished, all the laws pertaining to the festivals will still be um, will still be applied. That means, uh, unfortunately, it sounds from the Rambam. I didn't go into this too deeply. That you still have to keep Pesach, even though Pesach is not relevant. What it's in
1: it's the Torah.
0: How would you abolish? It's a mitzvah. So I, I said so, what I'm saying. That's what I'm just getting at is that i would assume that the the relevance of pesach as a festival will be abolished that means it's no longer going to be a relevant festival you're not going to have to sit seder night for three and a half hours and say the haggadah you may not be able to eat chometz on pesach you may have to eat matzah on pesach you may have to eat korban pesach but but the relevance of the festival why are we doing this Zecher Letzias Mitzrayim. You're not going to have to do things Zecher Letzias Mitzrayim. Whereas the festival of Purim, which is there to remember the almost completed annihilation of the Jews by Haman, which was thwarted by Mordechai and Esther, that seems to be something that needs to be recalled by Jews every single year for eternity. So it's not something that will ever be dismissed whereas Zeche Litzias Mitzrayim does not have the same relevance. I'm, I'm obviously, um, I'm not going into the detail of it, but there, there is other stuff going here on here below the surface of the Rambam, which needs further clarification. I don't want to go into that. I, in other words, I don't want to get too technical and detailed on that aspect. I'm looking more here in the, in the Machshava side of things to try and understand what the Midrash is trying to tell us, and what lesson is to be learnt from the fact that Purim will not be abolished and the other festivals are to be abolished. How that is applied in practical purpose in, in, the, in a practical way, I'll leave for another time. So let's look at the third um, the third source. This is the Chuvasarashpa. So the Chuvasarashba, um you may or may not know the Rashba was a um, a thirteenth century um, A luminary from uh, Germany France area and he wrote a parish on the Gemara he was um, one of the first people to put together a book of Teshuvot what's Teshuvot people sent him questions from all over the Jewish world and he would respond to them, but rather than just send them the letter, he recorded his response and at some point left them, as it were, for publication. In those days they didn't have printing presses, but left them for posterity, so that this collection of questions and answers could be referred to because they're useful for anybody. You know, if I have a question and I ask you a question, my question and your answer may be relevant to other people, so if it's recorded in a book, then other people can gain from it as well. He so he has this book to Harashba. And somebody posed a question to him. Masha Amruba Midrash, that which it says in the Medrash, Shekola mo'adim Purim lohi that all the festivals will be abolished, but Purim won't. What is that about? Umi Um, Who would ever suggest, how is it possible to take this medrash seriously, to think that even one word of the Torah is going to be abolished, is not going to be relevant? In other words, the the premise of the medrash doesn't make sense. That's what the questioner put to the Rashpah. How is it possible to take this idea seriously? It sounds like um, hyperbolic. Right, it's hyperbole. It sounds like an exaggerated idea because obviously the Torah is going to be eternal, and everything that's contained in it is going to be eternal. V'yesh lomar, and this is the answer that the Rashba gives. Dvarim od There's something else in this medrash which can shed light on this idea. The Purim is never going to be abolished. V'hu sham Purim eno and what's the other aspect of the midrash that can help us understand that Purim is never going to be abolished, but the other festivals will be? It's the fact that the midrash says that Yom Kippur also will not be abolished, and it gives as the pasuk to prove that point the pasuk is Zot lachem l'chukat olam." The word, the words, the phrase "chukat olam" conveys this idea of the eternity of Yom Kippur. The imken zekashay yoter. If that's the case, that the words chukat olam are meant to convey the eternity of Yom Kippur, that's very problematic. olam, Because the phrase chukat olam is also mentioned in the Torah, in Shmot Yudbet, with reference to Pesach. And if that's the case, that Chukat Olam is telling you that Yom Kippur is never going to be abolished, why don't you use the same phrase Chukat Olam to tell us that Pesach is never going to be abolished? Right? So the Pasuk is very clear in Shmot, you bet. The Pesach is also Chukat Olam. So therefore, the Rashba says the fact that Yom Kippur is mentioned alongside Purim in the Medrash. And the way Yom Kippur is compared to Purim is through this phrase Chulkat Olam. Means that what we're trying to see here in the Medrash or what the Medrash is trying to teach us is not quite what we're trying to fit into it. So what solution does he offer? Al-Keym, says the Rashba. As a result of that, it would appear to me, Actually, what the Medrash is saying is something completely different. The Medrash is telling us that throughout Jewish history, there will always be an obligation to observe the festivals. However, there will be times when it won't be possible to celebrate Pesach or Shavuos, or Sukkos. Or there may be times, and there will be generations, who won't, take, won't consider those festivals relevant. For one reason or another, they will have abandoned those festivals. Comes to Sukkos, no one will have a luluvan and Esrug, and no one will go into a sukkah. Comes to Pesach, they won't have Seder night, and they won't eat matzah. However, aval bimei hapurim iftiach katuv. If there's one festival that will be maintained and sustained throughout history, it makes no difference when that is going to be. There will always be a festival of Purim. Purim will always be there. And the Medrash continues by telling us that similarly Yom Kippur is always going to be celebrated. There won't ever be an era in Jewish history where either Purim or Yom Kippur will have been abandoned. Whereas the other festivals... Festivals, maybe. And he makes an interesting point. He says that Yom Kippur, even if people don't fast on Yom Kippur, it will be, um, it will work. It will be efficacious because the day itself Acts as an atonement. It's known as the Day of Atonement. So even a Jewish person acknowledges the existence of Yom Kippur, that will have relevance to his atonement or her atonement, and Yom Kippur will always apply. Similarly, Purim will always apply. There's something about Purim which is eternal. Chukat olam ha'amur be'pesach, azhara. However, the phrase chukat olam that's used in the pasuk about Pesach is not to, is not telling us that this is what's going to happen. It's not telling us chukat olam this will always be. It's telling us you observe it chukat olam. It's a warning. It's, it's telling us what we must do. That's the context of the phrase Chukat Olam in the Pasuk. The Katuv Chukat Olam chaguhu. You should celebrate it forever. Not that it will be there forever. So I'm, I'm parking this for a little bit. We're going to come back to it. What the Rashba is saying is that Purim and Yom Kippur Purim and Yom Kippur will apply and somehow will exist even at a time when no festivals are are celebrated and the commemoration of those festivals are no longer with us. I have to tell you that this is a very problematic idea, although we're going to come back to it in a slightly different context later on. It's a very problematic idea. I don't know an era of Jewish history when no festivals were celebrated by anybody. Um, You know, I I can't think of an era in Jewish history where there was no Pesach, for example. I just can't think of one. I'm I'm racking my brains. I can't think of a time in Jewish history where no Jew in the world celebrated Pesach. I can't think, you know, even today, the most irreligious of Jews, the most disconnected of Jews, is conscious of Pesach and will have a Seder. They may eat chometz at the Seder. You know, they have the Seder in one of the hotels here. you, You know about this? They have a Seder in one of the Beverly Hills hotels where they have matzah on the table and they serve the food from the hotel. It's not kosher food. They just have a box of matzah and a a bottle of of wine on the table. Uh, And I heard that last two, three years ago, somebody told me that they went to one of the Sedarim and one of the guests at the seder, this is absolutely true. One of the guests at the seder um, called the waiter over and he said, listen, the matzah, I can't eat matzah. It doesn't agree with me. Can you bring some bread to the table? (laughs) no and they brought they brought bread to the table this is seder night okay we're all laughing right but they do celebrate Seder. There they are on Pesach night. They paid $150 to sit in a five-star hotel to eat matzah and drink some wine and look at the Haggadah. Go and figure it out. I can't figure it out. But there you go. That's what happened. I can't think of a time. I don't know when the, when the Rashba is talking about. He's certainly not talking about the early 21st century in Beverly Hills. Where else in the world is there where there are Jews who don't know that there is Pesach? By the way, and there's plenty of people of, of, of Jews in the world who don't know anything about Purim. Okay. Ask the average Jewish person in Los Angeles, when is Purim, what is Purim, they don't know what you're talking about, right? Well, they don't even know that. They don't don't even know. Yeah, they don't know know Shavuos, okay, but Shavuos would fit in with the Rashbah, but they don't know Purim. Yom Kippur, that's true. Yom Kippur, every Jew knows. But Purim, who says people know Purim? So the Rashbah doesn't make sense. In other words, the facts within the Rashbah don't make sense. I do like this idea, and that's what we're going to come back to. That Purim and Yom Kippur have a power beyond the observance of the holiday. That there's, some, there's a vibe in the day which, will, which is eternal. That idea I like. And that's what I'm going to come back to. No,
1: it does make sense, actually, in some twisted sense of the word. You said 13th century and you call him visionary. He went to the essence of word Torah. Supposedly,
0: mean to shoot the arrow. So we are trying for the best. Yes. Okay. But I, no, I I like that. But but I like this. I do like this idea of of a of a particular day. You know that we do feel a vibe in a day. I'll give you an example. We all have a birthday. Is there anything special about your birthday? Nothing at all. It's the same as the day before and the same as tomorrow. Right? It's it, it's the same thing. No so differently, we do feel special on our birthday. There's something about your birthday which is there has a vibe. So I, I like this idea that there's a time that has a vibe that has a power. That is a very nice idea, and that Yom Kippur and Purim have are unique in this. That that power will never will never be abolished. The power of the day will never be abolished. It's irrespective of the observance of the day. It's got nothing to do with whether the Jew knows it's Purim or whether the Jew knows it's Yom Kippur. But Purim and Yom Kippur are parallel in this, that the day has power. a more serious <coughs> note,
1: those two each
0: right? Yes, so that we're going to come to. This correlation is what we're going to come to. Let's look at the Maharal. Yes, so the, so that's what the Medrash seems to be saying that that vibe of Geula is no longer re- necessary in the ultimate moment of Geula. That's what the Rashba is trying to say. There's no relevance in those festivals, but there is relevance. The Rashba, that's he doesn't say it in the way I'm saying it, but what he seems to be saying, I'm I'm extracting extrapolating. Forget now that he says that, so they're, they're they're
1: the, said gula that time
0: of- yeah. So that Geula is not necessary in the time of the ultimate Geula. And to celebrate receiving the Torah, which is part of Yetzias Mitzrayim, is not relevant with the ultimate ge'ulah. But once Mashiach is come, Yetzias Mitzrayim is not relevant anymore. And Sukkot is also about Yetzias Mitzrayim. But there is a relevance in Yom Kippur, and there is a relevance in Purim. Now, the Yom Kippur bit we may get, and that's what Eva's been referring to. The Purim bit is a little bit harder to understand, and that's what I'm going to try and get at. Because, by the way, this is a Purim shit, it's not a Yom Kippur shit. Okay. So, the Maharal. Let's look at the Maharal. It's a very famous, very well-known Maharal. The first thing he does is he dismisses the Rashba. There are those who say that all the festivals are at some point going to be abolished. Because the non-Jews won't allow us to observe it. He sort of takes the idea and runs with it. And therefore, the the festivals were abolished, or have been abolished, or will be abolished. That means that what the Rashba is saying is that the Jews may want to observe Pesach Shavuos and Sukkot, but they won't be able to because the non-Jews persecute non-Jewish persecutors won't allow them to. That's how he interprets the Rashba. But Purim and Yom Kippur will never be. Um, abolished as a result of any kind of decree, external persecution. And that's a unique promise for the Jews that these two festivals will remain in place even if everything else falls apart. The Says the Maral very simply, I'm afraid it's a very nice idea, but it doesn't make any sense in the Medrash. If you read the Medrash, that's not what the Medrash is saying. Aval. The fact is that the medrash has to be explained according to its literal understanding. That there will there will be mitzvot practical mitzvot that we will not keep at some point in the future. However. Purim and Yom Kippur will never be abolished. So what the Maral appears to be saying is that the observance of Pesach as uh, put to us in the Torah, that means you have to bring a korban Pesach and you have to eat um, Matzah, those mitzvot will not be relevant at some point in our future. And if you're now going to ask, as you very well might, why specifically these two? Why Purim and Yom Kippur? Davar zeh inyan elu ha This is something which has a unique application to these commandments or these mitzvot. elu is it that is unique about Purim and Yom Kippur that doesn't apply to any other festival? It's the idea of resurrection. The idea of Having died and being brought back to life. That after you have reached the point of death, that you come back to life as you were before. So you were alive and at some point you were dead and now you are alive again. That's what Purim is about. We're going to get more into it in a moment. So... Um, What is Yom Kippur about? Somebody who is, as it were, worthy or guilty of sin so that they're going to have a death sentence. And now that death sentence has been revoked. So they're a dead man walking. They're on death row. That's Yom Kippur. And at the end of Yom Kippur, that death sentence has been revoked. they've had the death sentence. Yachzor and now he's come back to life, that death sentence has been revoked. What's Purim? Purim is that every Jew had a death sentence. There was, this was the Jewish nation facing certain death, complete annihilation and extermination. As a result of the story of Purim, that, um, that death threat was removed. And therefore, it's considered a resurrection. That is the correlation between Purim and Yom Kippur. These are two festivals where you are, you are in danger of dying and you've been brought back to life. And therefore, Purim. That they were destined for um, a horrible death and they've been brought back to life. If you want to know what resurrection is, resurrection is something beyond the norm. When somebody is resurrected, that is outside of the normal laws of nature, right? I mean that we we believe in Judaism that there will be a point of resurrection. We don't understand what it means, but it's one of the thirteen articles of faith. Um, codified by Maimonides. You must believe in the power of resurrection, that somehow the neshama which has departed the body will come back into this world and reanimate the body and that soul will be reborn. We believe in that. The whole concept of resurrection is something miraculous. We don't really understand what it means. You know, which body is it going to inhabit the neshama? The old body of the person that died? The sick body? Or is it going to be a young body? At what age? A baby? You know, is going to be born again and grow, grow older? An adult body? You know, what happens if, you know, this is the question you always get asked in school. What happens if somebody's married more than once? Right? So, uh, you know, their, their wife or husband died, they got married again, maybe the wife or husband died again. Now, which husband are they married to? The first one, the second one, the third one, it seems a bit unfair. What happens if they're married to somebody for six months and then they're married to somebody for 40 years? They go back to the first husband or the second husband? It, it, these are the questions I always got asked in school. I don't have the answers to any of these questions. I just know I believe in resurrection, the power of resurrection. Here we have an example of resurrection. Purim is resurrection. These are dead men walking, dead people walking, an entire nation in 127 provinces who are um, headed for certain death and that death sentence is revoked. That is something beyond the realms of nature, says the Maharal. This person is certainly going to die and now that death is removed from them. Somehow God changed the decree and that person who was certainly going to die is now going to live. That is the, um, the uh, essence of Purim. The essence of Purim is that you were all going to die and now you all lived. On Yom Kippur, When you've had the death sentence imposed on you and somehow against, you know, any prediction that this was possible, you are now headed for another year of life. That is something which is beyond the realms of nature. This is only through the intervention of the heavenly powers. And this is... Is you know makes perfect sense. We don't need to explain this too much. And therefore, it is specifically at the time of resurrection that these two festivals become relevant. So, why do we celebrate them in a time in the future, the messianic time? Because that's the time of resurrection. We believe that that's when we're going to have to HaMetim. If that's the case, what are the two festivals that are most relevant to celebrate the resurrection? Tchiat Purim and Yom Kippur, because those are resurrection festivals. Because they're going to be relevant to that particular era, that particular time, which is going to be the time of resurrection. Purim and Yom Kippur are the resurrection festivals, and that's going to be the era of resurrection. (laughs) So if you want to understand the essence of Purim and Yom Kippur, it's a time of La'atid Lavor. The message of the Medrash is really there to tell us what we're celebrating on Purim. The supernatural miracle of resurrection at a time of certain death. Yom Kippur, what is it that is the festival of Yom Kippur? It's a day when we are all resurrected. Because we have a death sentence. or well, not all of us, but that's the potential. We may all be tzaddikim. I hope we are. But if we're not tzaddikim, Yom Kippur is a day of resurrection. What is Purim? It's a festival of resurrection. It's the, it's the festival of coming back to life after being dead. And therefore, the Medrash is telling us that by using this association with Laatid the Lavo, these are the only, only two festivals that will be relevant. Yes?
1: But I would say perhaps there is more metaphorical meaning into it because of resurrection is not a gift resurrection is hard labor potentially based on shedding the old skin and it's we will be better and the future that ideal world will be there because we learn certain lessons yes and it's interesting that Maharal is the one who says it right so this is 15th century in 16th Alchemy's century in yeah. Prague.
0: yes Absolutely.
1: Prague, and the alchemists... They
0: believe in something ancient... which is better than, the, greater than its, than its chemical components.
1: Ancient scientists yes. or medieval scientists, origin of the science as we know it, used to say that you will find the improvement in the place which you least want to look. So you have to go through that hard lesson to manifest on it. And that's what he is yes. saying
0: but um, but the idea of resurrection is something which is very appealing to human beings because we know that we are all mortal so um, it's a, it's a very interesting idea in in you know in a religious context what what is the thing that you know if you speak to an atheist now quietly not in a debate right what is the thing that bothers them most the fact that life is pretty pointless I'm born and I die and what do I achieve and there's you know there's no real memory of me I'm a nothing I'm 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 an object of chance right all that all that happened was that at some point the world created itself and here I am there's no god and I was born and I'm going to die and whatever I do in my life really has very little relevance right you, you know the greatest humanist will tell you whatever I do in my life has no long term impact what is the what is the thing that people find most appealing about being religious is that there's a point to your life there's more to your life than your life i have a neshama it was put there by god it was there before i existed it's going to be there after i'm gone and at some point god is going to um, re-energize my neshama in this world and there's going to be relevance to my life it's, some, it's somehow all going to come together at some point in the future this idea of resurrection is very very powerful and I think the Midrash here is trying to convey this extremely powerful message. You don't really appreciate Purim. You just think, oh my gosh, I was saved, I was going to die, I was, going to, I was saved. You know, ask a Holocaust survivor what it meant to walk out of the gates of Auschwitz. They had certain death, right? So the ones who believe, I'm not doing. there are plenty of Holocaust survivors, um, Nebuch, most of them have died by now, but, you know, the ones who, who I've spoken to in my life, the religious Holocaust survivors, for them, they, they had this sense of resurrection. And they had this sense that they wanted to recreate that which they'd left behind, whatever it was, wherever they came from, whether they came from Poland or Germany or or Russia, wherever it was that they came from, if they survived the Holocaust, they wanted to recreate it. That's why if you look at every school building across the Jewish world, the names on the outside of those buildings are always the names of Holocaust survivors. We need to teach our kids to be Jews. What are you talking about? The best thing would be to teach them not to be Jews, then the Nazis won't murder them. But there is this idea of resurrection like a phoenix, you know, we're coming out of uh, coming out of nothing out of the dust. We will rise up again. This idea of resurrection is one of the most powerful messages of religion. And what the Medrash is telling us is you want to know what you're celebrating on Purim. You really want to understand what you're celebrating on Purim. This is what the morale says. It's a powerful idea, isn't it? You're not celebrating that this victory in Persia three thousand two and a half thousand years ago. Ah, Big deal. I'm sure there were other times when Jews were threatened or went through difficult times. You are celebrating the resurrection of the Jewish nation. This was the beginning of the Second Temple, the beginning of everything that we understand as Judaism. The foundation of the Judaism that you have right now here in America or in England or in Israel or anywhere is this story. Because you were going to die, and the Jewish nation was doomed, and it was all going to be over. The end of history. And it didn't happen. That's what you're celebrating. It's no less a miracle than the resurrection at the end of time. That's the power of Purim. Are you saying
1: that the Second Temple is a second chance?
0: Yes. (laughs) Absolutely. That's what the Second Temple was. It's amazing. Okay. No, it was never the same as the first Beit Hamikdash. No, of course not. Okay, but but the power of Purim is that we got that second chance. We were doomed. That was the prediction of the pasuk, right? Read the Tochacha in Devarim. It doesn't say you're going to be given a second chance.
1: Okay. Here, no one died in Six
0: million had to die. But look, but look at that power—the power of resurrection, the miracle of resurrection. You know, here in the 1950s, in in. in America. You know, last week, I'm not going to say who it was, I had a a significant person who's now retired who worked for 40 years or 50 years in the conservative movement. Okay? They were convinced in the conservative movement in the 50s and 60s that Orthodox Judaism was doomed. It was over. And Reform Judaism was also doomed because it had gone too far into whatever it was. And the only thing that could survive, the American form of Judaism that would survive, would be this very liberal attitude, um, traditional Judaism that was represented by the conservative movement, it's completely collapsed. But why did they think that? Because they were convinced that there was no, no Jewish woman ever gonna put on a shaito. I mean, it's never gonna happen. That's, that time is over, and nobody, nobody's gonna send their kids to a sleepaway yeshiva where they teach Talmud all day. It's never gonna happen. That era is over. So we gotta recreate a Judaism, which isn't that. But it's not over. He said, "I'm looking back now, 50 years later, and he says we made a massive mistake. It's not over. It it's a, not, it's a, it's a, 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 a more than a renaissance, 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 renaissance. That you know, he told me that, the, that at its height, at its height, the conservative movement had 1,100 synagogues in North America, in United States and Canada. It's now less than 600, and many of those 600 aren't affiliated to the conservative movement. That means they don't pay." Um, any kind of uh, um, uh, annual fee or anything like that. We just know that they are not orthodox. They're shuls, like sadly the Tree of Life shul in Pittsburgh, which was attacked. They said it's a conservative synagogue, but it's not affiliated with the United Synagogues of Conservative Judaism. What I'm saying is that when we celebrate resurrection, we need to realize the miracle of resurrection. Purim, as a result of Purim, we rebuilt the base. Amikdash, That was This was the platform for the rebuilding of the second temple. We're not celebrating some political or military victory. That's not what we're celebrating. That's what the Maharal wants to convey. I'm going to miss the rest of the Maharal. I'm going to go straight to number five, which is the Zohar. Um, Purim is called by the name Yom HaKi Purim. Says the Zohar. Purim it Kriat. Our shame Yom Hakippurim, as in the future, the Atidin lehit In the future, we shall delight in it and change it from affliction to delight. The Zohar is very, very powerful. It's telling us a um, a, a remarkable piece of information about Purim. Purim is going to be the Yom Kippur of the future. So if you want to know how we're going to celebrate Yom Kippur, Le'atid, we're going to celebrate it like Purim. Yom HaKippurim. It's going to be a day like Purim. That is where the name Yom HaKippurim comes from. Yom HaKippurim, like Purim. Kippurim, not Kippurim, Kippurim. That's what the Zohar is saying. Let's look at what the Rabbi Shal of Rijin said. He was a great... Hasidic leader of the 19th century died in 1851. So one Purim, he sat at his tish at the uh, uh, annual gathering, Purim gathering of all his Hasidim, and he said the following: Patach Amar, Yom Haki Purim, Harehuka Purim. You should know Yom Kippur is like Purim. Mi Nitlebe Which one is contingent on the other? Katan Nitlebe Gadol. So if you're looking, if you ever say, but you know, if I say something is like something else, the something else is obviously the more um, uh, concentrated version of the thing that um, I'm comparing, right? So if I say, you know, I read a book, it's as brilliant as the other book I read. What am I telling you about the other book? Then the other book was brilliant. And this one is also brilliant. What is it if I say Yom HaKippurim? This day is like Purim, which one is hanging on which one, which one is more khashuv? Purim is more khashuv. I'm saying this day Yom Kippur is like Purim which is even better. That's, that's what the rishonim said, Mashma uta dvarim, sheyom haPurim hu yom gadol yoter miyom What is what can we derive from this? That Purim itself, the festival of Purim is greater even than Yom Kippur and therefore if you're thinking about it now if you take this idea further what is that saying what are we trying to say that purim is actually the greatest day of the jewish calendar year so we've got we started off with a medrash that said purim is never going to be abolished in the medrash we mentioned that yom kippur is also not going to be abolished and now we've reached the stage where this great Hasidic master is telling us actually Purim is the holiest day of the year. Because even Yom Kippur is not quite as holy as Purim. I want to read to you the Eish Kodesh. And then we'll finish with the Pachad Yitzchak. Eish Kodesh is on page 3 of the source sheet, number 7. Source number 7. Eish Kodesh, we've said this many times before. Rabbi Klonimus Kalman Shapira. He was the Rebbe of Piotr Cessna, and he had a school network, or a big school in Piotr Cessna. He was known as one of the great educators of Polish Jewry, and um, he got uh, deported to Warsaw Ghetto, and he became, as it were, the Rebbe, the inspirational rabbinic leader of Warsaw Ghetto. Every week he would give a sermon, and at some point in 1942, Immanuel Ringelblum told all the People in Warsaw Ghetto who had written anything down relating to their experiences in Warsaw Ghetto to give him uh, all their uh, manuscripts and he buried it in a milk urn underneath the ground and it was found after the war. Now he had recorded a lot of history which was relevant, a lot of information about Warsaw Ghetto but one of the things he buried in this milk urn were the manuscripts of Rabbi Kalman Shapira which were then published um, in a book form called *Eish Kodesh*, and this is the first year in Warsaw Ghetto. I have to tell you that, and a, a book has recently been published about *Eish Kodesh* to see the transformation of this rebbe in Warsaw Ghetto. How his, you know, his initial enthusiasm is tempered as time moves on and things get worse and worse and worse, and people are dying. But initially, he was giving inspirational sermons. To the Hasidim. They were all coming to hear him. To get inspired. And he delivered. This is the sermon he gave on Purim in 1940. It is written in the holy Tikunei Zohar. That Purim is like Yom HaKippurim. That's the Zohar that we just read. Just like on Yom Kippur. There is a requirement of fasting and tshuva. A person must do them. Whether he wants to or not. Now, I think this idea is what the Rashbot is talking about. That the idea of Yom Kippur is, it's a time of Teshuvah, of repentance, and whether or not the person wants to repent or do Teshuvah, the day itself is Yom HaKippurim. They are fulfilled because of the decree of Hashem. The Teshuvah is something that's achieved through the day, so too. The simcha, the happiness, the celebration, the joy of Purim is required not only if a man is naturally in a simcha situation or in a situation where it's possible for him um, should he rejoice, but rather he has to be happy. So in Yom Kippur you have to repent, you have to do tshuva, it's a day of tshuva, it's like on your birthday, you have to celebrate your birthday, right? You can't say, I can't be bothered celebrating my birthday today, I'm going to postpone my birthday until next week. Doesn't work. I'm I'm going to postpone my birthday until next month. No, no, no. Today's your birthday. Today is Yom Kippur, right? By the way, I know a lot of us would like to do that. It's not happening. I'm just telling you it's not happening. Today's Yom Kippur. Today's the Truva Day, like it or not. So this is a variation of what the Rashba was saying. Says He's saying here, Make sure you celebrate. Whether you like to or not. You're here in Warsaw Ghetto. Do you want to know what Yom Kippur and Purim have in common? On Yom Kippur, it's a chuva day whether you like it or not. On Purim, it's a simcha day whether you like it or not. It's a day of joy. So you better, you better embrace it. Do what you have to do to be happy. Don't say, I'm going to do it next week. That's not going to be good. Even if he's feeling wretched and brokenhearted, his mind and spirit trampled. It is required of him to find even a little spark of simcha to bring into his heart. Your job on Purim is to find a reason to be happy. I had a friend, actually, I met him last week for lunch. He was here, it's the first time I've seen him in years. He was um, the uh, founder, together with me, of the Saatchi Synagogue in London. His name is Michael Sinclair, Michael and Penny Sinclair, a couple, they were very well-known philanthropists 20 years ago. In the UK, they now live most of the time in Israel. Anyway, he used to get really upset. He said, because everywhere you go in, in, um, in England, and in fact in Europe, Jews are always complaining about how bad things are. So he decided, he was a very well-known fellow, he was the head of a of a charity called um, Jewish Continuity. At that time, it doesn't exist anymore. He decided he's going to give a series of lectures across the UK in shuls, and everybody, obviously, was very excited that he should come and give a lecture in their shul. And the title of the lecture was Reasons to be Cheerful. Anglo-Jewry, Reasons to be Cheerful. And that was the lecture an hour of all the things that the Jewish community in England was achieving, rather than finding all the things that were wrong with the community. Reasons to be Cheerful, that's what Purim is about. Reasons to be Cheerful. You better be happy. Stop looking for reason, And look, he's talking to them in the Warsaw Ghetto. He's saying, I understand you're miserable. You're feeling terrible. Of course, you're, you're, you're facing imminent death. Every single day is a life and death struggle. It's Purim. Purim is a day to be happy. And similarly, he continues, according to the principle of whatever is above, so below. That means whatever is in Shamaim, so it's going to be um, in in this earth, in this world, just as Yom Kippur, the day itself atones, this is really the Rashba, even if the person didn't complete his Tshuva. That means you came to Shul on Yom Kippur and you said, Ovinu and Hashem Bagadnu and and all the things, but somehow you didn't feel that it worked. But Yom Kippur still works. It still has power beyond your ability to harness that power. The Talmud teaches that he is atoned, that Ki hayoim hazeh yechaper aleichem, right? The day itself, this is what the rashbah means. The day itself is going to be mechaper. You're going to achieve atonement because it's Yom Kippur and you somehow were aware of its existence and did whatever it is that you did. So too on Purim. Even if the Jew is not experiencing simcha according to how one should, you're, you're not quite as happy. You smiled, but you didn't smile with a full smile. You were happy, but you were, it was happiness tinged with sadness to how one should. And his service on God, of God on Purim is not perfect. The salvation and the simcha of the day itself acts on him. You should know that even if you slightly embrace the concept of Purim, you will be overwhelmed with the happiness of the day. And he the way it did at the, first, at the time of the first Purim. You should know that simcha is waiting for you. You need to harvest it. It's there for you to get. And therefore, if the slightest ability that you have to be happy, use it and the rest leave to Hashem. That day will make you happy. So that's what the Ish Kodesh said. To the Jews of the Warsaw Ghetto in 1940. I'm going to end with Pachad Yitzchak, Rabbi Yitzchak Chutner of Chaim Berlin Yeshiva. It's a long piece, but I've, I've left out the Hebrew, I've only included the English, and those of you who are listening online, you should certainly download the source sheet and refer to this, and perhaps use it on Purim because it's beautiful. So he, <coughs> he quotes the Medrash, the memory of Purim shall never cease, for even though all the holidays are to be abolished, in the future the days of Purim will never be abolished. Let us now explain this with a parable. He says, let's use a... What is this comparable to? Two people are given a task to serve as a night watchman, right? So they're both given this task that they have to be the security guards at night. And to try and recognize all of the people who come to wherever it is that they're guarding. So the first person lit a candle, a torch... A flashlight and he held it up towards everyone looks in their faces using the lights complete pitch black but when he uses the flashlight maybe he's using the little light on his phone he looks at the person's face and the person he can recognize the person but the second person didn't have a candle didn't have a flashlight didn't have anything to light up anybody's face so how did he recognize others he worked on strengthening his sense of hearing so By listening to the person, he recognized people's voices. It was totally dark, he couldn't see them at all. But he he would say to them, Hey, what's your name? And the person would say their name. And he'd recognize their voices. He taught himself to recognize people's voices. So he doesn't need to see them. Because simply by recognizing the voice, he knew who they were. Okay? So there's two methods here. One is using the light to recognize people because you can see their features. And the other is to listen to the person and through listening to the person, you'll know who they are. The first person was ultimately better at the task of discerning those who approached, as his power of sight was clearer and more distinct than the one who could only use the power of hearing. So it's less reliable to use the power of hearing because, I mean, you hope you understand. Hi, what's your name? The person says their name. You hope that you're right, that you can understand that their voice is different than the other person's voice, the accent, the intonation, whatever it is. But if you can actually see their face using a flashlight, it's obviously going to be much easier. On the other hand, the actions of the second person were advantageous in a different way. And this is the key point. In that he trained himself and strengthened his skill of listening and recognizing the voices of... Of others. The second person um, did not do this, right? The other person oh, never recognized other people's voices. Yes, the first person. The first person who used the flashlight never improved his skill at doing anything. All he ever learnt was how to see people's faces in the light. Continues Rabbi Hutna. Okay, so in the morning, the dawn breaks, and the first person blows out his candle, turns off his flashlight. For what use is the candle? in the middle of the day. You don't need a candlelight in the middle of the day. Any advantage they had gained from the use of the candle at night is now extraneous, is now irrelevant. But the second person, who can certainly see clearly in the daytime, right? That is no different now. The other person has no edge over him in terms of being able to see the other people, also retains the power of listening and hearing that he developed during the night. These powers have been eternally acquired in this person's soul. In other words... By never being able to see in the night, remember I wrote this piece about the Museum of the Blind a few weeks ago that we went to in Tel Aviv, right? Blind people have incredible powers of hearing, of feeling, and all all their other senses are heightened because they can't see. So he's applying this same idea to somebody who doesn't see in the night but has to use his other senses. In the day, that's going to be a great advantage because suddenly... They, what they hear in the day is going to make m- more impact on them. They're going to understand it better than the other person who never improved that particular sense because they had the flashlight. Um, in a Jewish leap year, the Megillah is read during the second month of Adar. Why do we read it in the second month of Adar, not the first? It's a Gemara in Megillah. What does the Gemara say? The reason is that we connect the salvation of Purim to the salvation of Egypt. Purim is connected, it becomes two months of G'ulah, right? The month of Adar and the month of Nisan are two months of Ga'ullah that are connected to each other. The G'ulah of Purim has to be, therefore, in the second month because you can't, there's not three months of Ge'ula, You can't have it separated. And there's not three months of Ga'ullah. So if you did it in other Ishan, there would be a month in between. So therefore, you do it in the second month of Adar, so that Mitzrayim and um, Pesach will be connected to Purim and the story of Purim. Consider the following. The salvation of Egypt relates to the statement, Hashem, I am God. It's the first of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord, your God, who took you out of the land of Egypt. So too, the salvation of Purim has its own I am God, its own Anoichi Hashem. There is a reference in the Torah to Purim using the same expression. I, God, Anoichi Hashem, Haster, Astir Esponai. I will hide or keep my face hidden. This allusion emerges from the Talmud's question. Esther min hatorah minayin. It's a question in the Gemara Megillah. Where can we find Esther in the Torah? Obviously, Esther's not in the Torah. She lived hundreds of years after the Torah was given. But often the Gemara will look for some reference, as it were. Maybe let's call it a prophetic connection in the Torah to some incident that happened many years later. Esther mina Torah minain. I will hide my face. So the word anoichi is also connected to Purim. Onoichi is connected to Pesach through Onoichi Hashem Malakech Hashem Teisich Omeret Mitzrayim. And it's connected, the word Onoichi is connected to Purim through Onoichi Haster Aster Ponai. In other words, the Jewish people have two ways of recognizing God. Either through the salvation of Egypt, or Through the salvation of Purim. These are two methods by which we can connect to God Discerning God through the salvation of Egypt is like the person who recognizes others with the help of a light you don't need to be a massive Talmud Chacham or a you know somebody for whom you know Nobody needs to convince the Jews leaving Egypt that God had set them free that is Redemption came about through God. They knew straight away and they sang a song. Obviously, God brought them out of Egypt. It makes perfect sense that the Jewish nation was redeemed by God and anyone would understand that. But discerning God through the salvation of Purim is like the person who uses their other senses. Right, if you read the story of Purim, we mentioned this last week in the Shir, God's name is not mentioned. Did God do it? Hmm, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I'm not sure. God's name is not mentioned. It could be just a, a series of lucky coincidences. Therefore, you to see the Onoichi in Purim is much harder than to see the Onoichi in Pesach. And to take this analogy further, when dawn ultimately breaks and the sun shines brightly, the light of the sun shall become sevenfold. The perception of God's light shall be seven times more than the light of the sun. Because of this, the lights that the Jewish people had previously needed will no longer be necessarily, necessary and will automatically be nullified. So what is the light of God that we have right now in darkness? We're now living in an age of darkness. The light that we have that convinces us of God's existence, of the Is that light that we have at night, it's the flashlight, it's the candle But what happens when the sun finally rises and it's dawn, that dawn being the messianic era And then everything will be clear, what will be the value in the light of Pesach? Very little Do you know where the true value will be? The light of Purim, the Hanaychi Haster Aster. That light will have enormous value when we've built up our Emuna, not through Pesach, not through the obvious miracles of Pesach, but through the unobvious miracles, the coincidences, as it were, of Purim that created the redemption that we record in Megillah Esther. That is the light, not the light. That is the sense. That is the skill that is going to really endure beyond the Messianic era, into the Messianic era. Pesach won't be relevant anymore. Purim will be relevant. Consequently, all of the holidays which are remembrances of the exodus from Egypt in the future, when the future Messianic salvation will become primary and past salvations will be considered subsidiary, less important, all of these holidays will become absorbed within the light of the future salvation. The ge'ula of Mashiach will take over every other celebration of ge'ula that we have. So Pesach, Shavuos and Sukkos and Shminyatzeres are not, no longer going to be relevant. They're not going to have that same pool because we don't need them anymore. They're the flashlight and now the light is going to be sevenfold. However, all of this is only true regarding the other holidays, Pesach, Shavuos, Sukkos, Shminyatzeres, whose core event is the exodus from Egypt. Yetzias Mitzrayim is relevant to those, therefore they're no longer relevant in a time of the messianic era. But Purim, during which the Jews taught themselves to discern the Anoichi from within darkness and hiding, certainly this power, this strength will remain in the soul of the Jewish people, even after the future dawn will break. All the holidays will be nullified. In, in, real, in real terms, they won't have relevance except for Purim. As the verse states, its memory will never cease. That is the power of Purim, that its message of being able to discern God using the extrasensory abilities that we will have built up in this time of darkness, that is something which will endure beyond Messiah's arrival. Just as the power which guides a person's steps in the darkness is also beneficial in the light, so too, those aspects of insight, those aspects of penetration, which, which shine from within the lack of light, are of untold value, even when it is completely light and bright. We'll leave it here for today and I wish you all a Purim Sameach.